Welcome to The Lima Now, a podcast about Aleister Crowley, ritual, and magic. Our guest today is musician and artist Genesis P. Orridge, and now here is your host, Frater Puck. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Thank you for joining us, Genesis. How you doing? Um, fine, except for being hot and sticky. Well, yeah, New York is pretty hot and sticky. Yeah, and I've been running back and forth. We've got um, an art opening, this gallery called Invisible Exports in the Lower right. East Side, called 30 Years of Being Cut Up. <laughs> and so I've been dashing backwards and forwards into Manhattan in this worst possible weather, hanging the show and doing interviews with different magazines and so on. But it's right. looking beautiful. I was there today. It's nearly all up. And I'm actually excited. You know, often with things from the past, it's sort of a little bit of a, a sort of lackadaisical shrug. Well, yeah, but I did that 30 years ago, so, yeah. Right. <laughs> well, this this actually really does cover the, the earliest collages, um, 69 to 72, when I was doing a lot of male art stuff with the Fluxus-type people and Ray Johnson right. and so on. Um, but it goes right through to the present day. So it also goes through a whole phase in the 80s where most of the work was sigils, which obviously is where this program is, re- you know, relevant. Right, um, right. And then from the sigils, it moves into the most recent era, which is Pandrogeny. So it's also a journey, and it's also very intimate. And it's actually really, it's my sketchbook, my my visual diary of all the different projects. And, yeah, we've been lucky. Someone has volunteered to finance uh, a book, um, a five, and it's about seven by five inch, like a post, big postcard-sized book with full-color illustrations of 200 collages. So that's going to be available during the exhibition, which is up until October the 20th. October the 20th, okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, um, it's going to look beautiful. I've looked at the photos, and it's really stunning. Yeah, it sounds exciting. The uh, the main focus of of your work now, you'd say, is pandrogeny. Yes, okay. pandrogeny is the sort of the summation of the previous forty five years of insanity, <laughs> <laughs> insanity and research and. Uh, fascination with the mysteries of what we often call life, or we assume is life. Right. Challenging gender, challenging sex roles, challenging all those boundaries. I'm believing that what people tell me or tell any of us is, in inverted commas, reality. We've nicknamed it nonsensus reality instead of consensus reality, that that doesn't really hold up very well. Even right. nowadays, if you look at mathematics and particle physics and quantum theories, the the language even reads more like a magical manuscript than it does a scientific tract. And, of course, we all know that science is the bastard son of alchemy. Right. And alchemy is uh, a serious, very important part of the magical view of the universe is so... In a way, we're returning in this massive, long, somewhat unnecessary loop where we went through a phase called rational, Mm. back back to the deliriously irrational but far more accurate magical view of things. Sure. That's that's very. That's why we're in a very, very, um, very important era, a very important time. 
And that's why we think pandrogeny is, is so important, because it ultimately deals with the human species taking uh, initiative in terms of the evolution of the species and its relationship with the planet and other planets and stars, right. and hopefully other dimensions. Sure. How about that? That's, that's <laughs> so are we overruling DNA, or is the, are, are we just a mode for DNA? Um, challenge, or is it we're just taking the reins now? Well, here's how it, it um, you probably know the basic story, but for people listening who might not, the whole thing really, even during the Temple of Psychic Youth in the 80s, when that was still active, right. we began towards the end uh, discussing the ratios of male and female in terms of different people's personalities, their characters. Mm, right. And so as some of the exercises, we would say that the left-hand side was female and the right was male. So if somebody was being over-macho or over-testosterone, then we would emphasize things to do with their left or with softness and so on. And we would very consciously try and redesign the balance between the two ideas of male-female, the stereotypes. But when we met Lady J, it, it became a much more serious exploration, first triggered by that sensation of having found one's other half. Sure. The, the, the missing piece of the jigsaw that makes you complete and whole. So it was very much um, an ultra-loving explore, exploration. We wanted to literally just be absorbed into each other. Right. And we actually had a very, a very profound um, visionary experience. We were at our apartment with Timothy Wiley, who used to work with John Lillian Dolphin, intelligence research and um, an altered state, and some other people. And Lady J and myself were sitting there. We, we were all talking, and then all of a sudden, she and myself both sat bolt upright and stared at each other, and we said to each other almost at the same time, can you see what I see? Hmm. And, and then I said, don't tell me, don't tell me. <laughs> Write it down, and I'll write down what I'm seeing. So right. we both wrote down that we could see each other with one body but both our heads. Wow. And we had the friends there as witnesses that we didn't cheat. Right. And, and that was when we actually really conceived that we were becoming the pandragine in a more literal way. Right. So, so it was about initially love. Then it was, we thought, well, what are we really, what are we trying to, to look at? And as you know, we're very deeply influenced by William S. Burroughs and Brian Geisman and their theories of the cut-ups. Right. And as we thought about the implications, some of them, we thought, well, Burroughs and Geisman would take their writing, their collages and photos, and they would literally chop them up, reassemble them, and then say that no longer did these new pieces of work that had been created by this random process belong to Burroughs or Geisman. They were the product of this other energy, this other um, entity that they called the third mind. Right. It was a separate um, intelligence that had some kind of existence and even a gender of its own separate from them. Right. So one thing that Burroughs always used to say to me was, where is control located and how do you short-circuit control? In fact, he gave me that as my life task to try and uh, undo that puzzle. So 
Jay thought what we could do was apply their theories and their techniques on an even deeper level by putting ourselves, our bodies, our personalities, our psychological profiles, our gender expectations from both outside and inside, um, and cut those up right. and see what happens. And that would be, create this third being, which we call the pandogyne, mm. the positive androgyne, or if you like, the alchemical hermaphrodite. Right. Um, and then as we're looking at that, we're thinking, well, we're right back with magic in alchemy here, you know, that the original perfect divine being and, and the, the, the state that we aspire back towards, the, the, hidden, the hidden grail, the, the philosopher's stone, right. could be represented by the pandogyne, by the self-chosen search to become and mutate into a neither male nor female being, but a sort of a new being, an right. evolutionary step on, beyond. So that's where it started, and it got more um, to do with DNA, because then we're thinking, well, what makes us male or female biologically? Right. DNA. What's the program that we don't have any control of over when we're born? DNA. Yeah. It changes how we are. You know, it has so much, such a profound importance in terms of what we become as a, as a being and what we are, um, what we look like, what we might be able to achieve, all these other things. But we, we don't have a choice in who, who wrote the software. Exactly. So this, so this ultimate software, we started saying, well, are we really the important sort of uh, beings, creatures here? Or are we more like a pasture that the DNA grazes on? Right. DNA has more continuity than we do. Certainly. Now, each individual human being has a certain lifespan, and basically we age once we can't reproduce, which means when we're of no more use to DNA. Right. But, but DNA continues on, adding more information, recording more information, Yep. And so there's a strong argument to say that the, 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 the primary life, uh, uh, life form on this planet is DNA. Right. And in a sense, human beings and other, other creatures, biological creatures, um, are just a combination of mobility, food, and um, replication techniques for this right. DNA. So we started to get more and more interested in that. From going from just deep love, we got to evolution and who's in charge of DNA. Maybe DNA is control. And if that's the case, how do we short-circuit DNA? Right. Is it possible for us to take control over that? And that, that, that raises other questions. One of the most important things we all have to realize is the human body is not sacred. It is just a body. Right. And it is a body that's as arbitrary as the DNA you get. And so we shouldn't assume, just because we've got used to the way that human beings tend to look, the basic right. thing of two eyes, the mouth, the nose, ears, etc., that that's the finished product. And perhaps the prehistoric larval phase of the human species is what's coming to an end roundabout now. And the big choice we have is to take control ourselves over every possible option of redesigning 
and adjusting what we what we receive biologically. Right. There's no reason once you say the body's not sacred that you have to accept anything that, right. that unfolds biologically. So, for example, if we want to go into space, or even inner space or outer space, so let's just say space as in space travel, as soon as you forget about the body having to look the way it does, you go, well, okay, then why don't we do research into how creatures like bears hibernate? Because one of the big problems is these long distances. Right. But if we can hibernate, that becomes more accessible. Certainly. And maybe we should be cold-blooded for space travel. Maybe we need scales or fur, mm. perhaps extra limbs, more arms, but no legs, because weightlessness, you don't need legs. Right. And that's when it gets exciting, when you start to let go of having any preconception okay. about the way that human beings look and realize consciousness is human beings. Right. And the body is just a cheap suitcase, as Lady J would say, <laughs> or as Timothy Leary used to say, the human body is just there to take the brain around and keep it mobile. So, right. So that's where we got to with Pandrogeny. And yes, it seems like it's, it's ever more important because what we discovered in a way, and what's quite obvious to most people, is that um, in prehistoric times, the, the male-female roles, the stereotypes, were, were useful for our survival as a species. Oh, sure, yeah. You know, and, and uh, the male would go out and do all the violent work trying to kill these horrible animals, which was not easy, trapping animals, finding meat, and the women would try and take care of the caves and make things to keep warm and do some gathering and, and so on. But right. what would still happen would be if some different plan appeared or some something unexpected happened, something that was different or other than they knew about, they would attack it. Mm -hmm. And so this inherently is built into us in our genetic structure that something different, something other than ourselves, something right. unfamiliar is something that we attack. Yep. We intimidate, and if necessary, we kill it. And of course... Once upon a time, as we said, that was helpful, but now that's destroying us. Yeah. When you look at the posturing that's happening in politics between sort of different religious dogmas, different economic dogmas right now, it's that same knee-jerk reactive process of something that doesn't agree with me, I must attack it and kill it. Right. And that's what's leading us towards a very dark age, a very sure. deeply dark time. And so these are really, really critical issues for to reassess and from a very different angle. So that's why we think it's important. Well, it's definitely important. The realization that consciousness is really, is really what's important and not these uh, cheap suitcases or, or yeah. whatever the phrase was is what's so important or reacting to the other is what is so important. That evolutionary step that mankind needs to make or... <laughs> It's really not going to go too well. Right. It's really, well, it's really going down the drain. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, it does bring you back to, to, to looking, uh, when we get back to consciousness, uh, to looking at magic or shamanism or certainly different ways of perception, changing the means of perception. You know, some people assume that with me and Jay, 
that we were swapping gender, that I was becoming female and she was becoming male or so, something like that, or that we wanted to look like twins. Yes, it would be nice for us conceptually to look the same, but that's, that's not really what we were doing. We wanted to create a really clearly committed and serious metaphor for the ideas behind it and say we believe this is so important that we're putting our bodies where our mouth is right. and saying, you know, we can do this. We can redesign ourselves and we can reconceive ourselves. And we can then take all these different um, areas of research like uh, that all these different cultures have. One of the great things Crowley did, right. in my opinion, was bringing uh, Eastern and Asian philosophies and techniques to the West in such um, uh, a carefully considered and methodical way. Um, he's really the godfather of, of um, holistic philosophy. Yeah. Um, and that's been very, very influential in so many ways. So we've, we've got to all sit back and um, develop, develop techniques for a future where we don't think I'm American, I'm British, I'm male, I'm female, or anything else. We just say, I'm human. Mm-hmm. What is best for the human species? Or as we like to spell it, humane with an E, big E right. on the end of human, which stands for evolution, right. as well as humane and compassion. So it's, it's a huge problem. It's always been there. Why do we exist and why do human beings hurt each other? How could there ever have been a second war? Yeah. Ever? <laughs> right. I mean, to this day, that mystifies me. How could any human beings, having seen anyone suffer and be mutilated and killed in, in a violent way in a war over some stupid piece of territory or, or some food, why could, how could they ever do it twice? How could they ever tolerate seeing that twice? And yet we've been doing it for we've been doing it for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. So somewhat something is implicitly broken in our innermost behavior patterns. Yeah. And behavior is the hardest thing to change. We all know that. Yeah. And one of the greatest ways we found to change behavior was through ritual. Sure. You know, that doing ritual and breaking down one's um, inherited cultural mores and trying to eventually wipe clean the slate of, of what you were expected to be so that you can become the narrator of your own individual story. That all tends to become possible, in my opinion, through ritual magic and, and uh, that kind of research, shamanic research, um, obviously sometimes psychedelic research. Sure. Because it always goes back to consciousness. Yeah. Because you're breaking through whatever those patterns or, or preconceived notions and getting out of your way long enough to actually experience a consciousness that's different than the, herd, the limited herd consciousness you've had. And right. You can actually think of other possibilities. Or other well, possibilities that become possible. Yeah, well, we're all crippled by other people's expectations. And when you're conceived in the womb, the the parents, as soon as they know that one of you is pregnant, they start talking about whether it's a boy or a girl, what's it going to be like, what will we call it, and then the family get involved, and the the friends and relatives and the community, and before you're even out 
<laughs> There's been nine months of pre-planning by all these people you've never met right. about what you're going to be like and how you're going to behave and how you're going to fit in with what they think is the right way of being. And then that continues for the next 15 years or so, usually sometimes longer. Right. And, and uh, the whole process is to fit you into what makes them comfortable or what makes their system continue to operate smoothly. Yeah. It is not about your best interest. Oh, no. So, so, you know, there's one of the things that we found ourselves with all kinds of, uh, you know, traveling the world and seeing ritual in Nepal and India and Native American ritual and so on and in the jungles in Burma, we secretly went there with the Aka tribes people, but... It's all, in a sense, a form of cut-up. The cut-up is really the most, one of the most powerful tools of the 20th century in terms of um, cultural engineering and behavioral change. Mm. Because, you know, once you start breaking things up so that they are colliding in unexpected ways which you've not controlled, right. that you've not had a conscious pattern uh, imposed on, you'll see revelations and surprises that change the way that you see something else forever. And it's one of the few ways that we know of to, to uh, guarantee a fresh view you know, from a very simple technique. If you chop it up and reassemble it, you just created a world that did not exist before. Sure. And you, every time you chop something up and do that, you've done it again. And ritual is a form of cut-up particularly if it's done with, with malice of forethought. And this, uh, the cut-up theory, pretty much right from the beginning you were using that in different ways, of course. Yes. In all yes. of your work. Is that, Absolutely. Is that true, right? Yeah. It's, it's the sort of the, the underlying theme right the way through is applying it with music, which is what we, how we ended up with Throbbing Gristle in industrial right. music. We're saying, well, maybe we could take these tape recorder experiments that we read about Burroughs and Geissen doing, where they would record things off the radio and in the street at random and cut them together and, and see what strange collisions happened. Right. One of the things that they discovered, one of the early descriptions of, of an actual magical ritual that Burroughs told me about himself in 19... 71 or 72, we were sitting in his apartment in St. James, London, and he was showing me his notebooks, and he went, oh, yes, and there was this photo of the street in London. He says, let me tell you about that. And there was a cafe that he used to like to go to for breakfast. Mm. And one day he went there, and the people in the cafe were really rude to him. Either they changed staff or something, but... They really, really upset him and, and were rude, and he left in disgust and said, well, I don't get my revenge on you. <laughs> so what he, what he did, he went back later and took photographs of the street with this cafe amongst the buildings, took that, got it developed. Then when he got the print with the, the cafe in the, in the middle of the street, he sliced out the cafe with a razor and destroyed it and stuck the picture back together minus the cafe. Uh-huh. Then he took his tape recorder and walked up and down outside the cafe in its business hours, recording the ambient street sounds. Then he went back to his apartment and he chopped in, cut in trouble noises, as he called them, war sounds, sirens, people screaming, 
uh, ambulances going past, and then he walked up and down in front of this cafe in business hours the next day with the trouble noises added to the, the basic background. Right. And he did that for about a week, and then the cafe closed, and the building was never reopened for about 20 years. <laughs> That's pretty effective. So, so there's an example of very modern magic using tape recorders and cameras and a curse. Mm-hmm. And and focusing, you know, I want to erase this place. Mm-hmm. So he literally erased it, and he managed to to close them down. You know, so the, that's a really clear example of a cut-up magic ritual. Obviously, it had um, ill intent, but yeah. sometimes sometimes we are angry, <laughs> and sometimes <laughs> sometimes anger, passion, passion is always. Uh, a good battery for magic, whether it be love or anger or some other form of desire, but passion is always a strengthener of, of magic. Yeah, the uh, you need to be inflamed. Mm. Which is why so much of ritual can be about uh, raising that cone of energy, that sense of excitement within the nervous system mm. until you're energized and otherworldly, and your body almost wants to explode. It's so full of, of power and thoughts and, right. and focus and intent. <laughs> I need more questions, Peter. I'm sorry, I'm talking too much. That's okay. It's perfect. Um, <laughs> if you're too naughty, I'll spank you too. Okay. Uh, okay. okay. Um, the Psychic Bible. Yes. Almost finished? It finished 564 pages of text wow. and between 40 and 50 uh, black and white illustrations plus a two-hour DVD of topi rituals and theories and, and, and videos. Wow. And it's going to be hardbound, wow. just like a Bible, with a gold leaf psychic cross on the front and... Red edges to the to the pages and a little ribbon like a one of those awful Christian Bibles, <laughs> and it's it's thirty years of research condensed into that book. Wow! Basically, um, it's it's amazing. And the person who's done the design, Hazel Hill, she's uh, someone we met from LA just recently, and she's made it look so also looks as if it's just. The only way to explain it, it looks like it has real authority. It looks important. <laughs> it um, and actually, you know what? Having read it, having not looked at a lot of that work for so long, but having to go through it with a fine-tooth comb, looking for typos and correcting it, and adding it and deciding what goes in and what doesn't, it's, a really, it's going to be a really important book in, in the, uh, the magical canon. It really is. And that's not because of me being involved with it. It's just, it's really fascinating. And there's not really been an experiment like that before. Um, and thank goodness Scotland Yard didn't get that stuff. Because <laughs> 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 they weren't looking, the silly things were only looking for films and photographs, not for paper. Uh-huh. Um, otherwise, we would have lost everything. So the other reason is it's being done is that... Um, the information gets saved and people have access to it. Sure. And yeah. we, we were just talking about the crisis that's looming for the species, and yeah. a lot of it deals with 
are different experiments with trying to set up uh, magical communes, magical communities, um, and how they did and didn't work. So people can actually go into it and say, we'd like to try that. That sounds like it could have been a really worthwhile way of, try- of living, right. where everybody was sharing and everything had a magical emphasis and people would in- interrogate each other about you know, how they behave and whether they're just exhibiting loops or issues, and if so, are there ways to get rid of those issues and loops if they're seen as negative? It became very, very much a combination of psychotherapy, uh, communal living, and magic, which, mm-hmm. which uh, was a fascinating experiment. In Brighton, where we were in, in England, which was the Topi Station, right. I guess you could, uh, could call that the headquarters, um, there were, in the end, there were five Topi houses with only Topi individuals living in them. Each house had its own autonomy and would design their way of living within a Topi framework as they understood it. Right. And each house had a nursery, which would be the room where rituals could take place and nothing else. That room was only for magic, magical ritual. Anybody living in the house could use it any time they wanted, and plus... Once a month, in some of the houses, in fact, most of the houses, once a month, everybody in the house would do a communal ritual, too. Mm, right. Um, and then they would report back. Every Monday, we would all have a dinner. Each house would take turns in a rota to make dinner for all the other houses. And we would all discuss what we'd found, what we'd thought about, what had been useful, what wasn't useful. Any, anybody who wanted to could tell people what they experienced, whether they thought it was relevant. Right. And then a different house would do all the cleaning up. And then one person would volunteer to tell their life story on the condition they left out nothing. <laughs> and and people did. People told their stories. And it was amazing. I would say about 50 to 60% of the boys and girls, genetic boys and girls, had had some kind of abuse in their childhood. Mm. It was Shocking, you know? Sure. Really, really shocking. But the bonds that we all developed through exposing ourselves that deeply to each other is what kept it such um, a uniquely sort of uh, powerful network so that when Scotland Yard and the British government were trying to smash it, they couldn't find one person to say anything negative about me. Right. The, it locked down. The loyalty level was just... And still is amazing. That's great. You know, um, and I, I really believe that came from the, the 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 creation of a safe place that we we all had. Yeah, you had true you know? bonds with each other. Mm-hmm. So those houses were a very interesting experiment. We tried all kinds of things. Uh, we got hold of the Gestalt Little Red Book, and we sort of practiced Gestalt exercises to see if those worked. Right. We read about the process church doing telepathy exercises, so we tried those at dinner. Every night when we had dinner in the, the, each house, uh, you, we would all first hold hands with the children as well. We're always invited if they wanted, right. and we would all c- concentrate, and people would write down what they'd seen, and then somebody would compare them all while we were eating. They would read out what everyone had seen, and bit by bit, we discovered the process, which were right, that you could get... Uh, a higher and higher incidence of of imagery mm. happening amongst a group of people if you kept on just emptying your mind gently before this this communal moment. 
Right. Um, there was one night when I had, I think, eight people, three, four saw lions fighting. Uh-huh. That's quite a high incident. That is. Um, and one of them was one of the children, correct? So it was, it was an ongoing experiment when we... We, and what was very interesting, reading the Psychic Bible now, was that it got to this point where we really felt that we had individually, to some degree, liberated ourselves from the preconceptions and obligations of the outside world. Mm. But then what? When you become that individual, that empowered individual that magic can create, right. there's, there's two ways it can go. One is it can become ego-bloating. Mm-hmm. and it becomes continually about being individual and empowered, or you suddenly realize that now you have a network of individuals, and the only really logical step forward is to become a collective that works together again, but, but with this new awareness of how we work, how our minds work, right. how our behavior works, what our real di- desires are communally, and how to focus uh, our intent as a group, as well as we've learned through civilization as individuals. And so we decided to, to close the Dolphinarium in Brighton. There was this really horribly, horrible Dolphinarium by the beach. It was just a circular concrete pool with not even a, no rocks, nothing. It's just a circular pool with chlorine, which makes them go blind. And, the, and these two dolphins would just swim round and round in circles. So we started to picket the Dolphinarium. Peacefully, but every Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, rain, wind, and shine, there were the topi people, always there, saying, please don't go in, and we would give leaflets to people and their families, saying, this is why we would prefer you don't go in. We went to local schools and did projects with children about what, you know, how, how intelligent dolphins are, and would you really want to torture a dolphin the way that they're tortured at the dolphin area? And they would do projects about dolphins and research. We did pop, pop festivals and got lots of friends in rock bands to come and do stuff. Um, it took a year and a half, but we never missed a weekend the whole time. Right. And people came from Topi America and Topi Europe to help and pick it all over. We closed it. We closed it down, even though it was a one and a half million pounds a year profit-making venture. We wow. closed it down, and we we made contact with animal rights groups through it, through doing what we did, and they arranged for us for the two dolphins to be flown to the Turks and Caicos Islands by the Aga Khan Foundation Blue Skies, and there they were rehabilitated. The two dolphins taught to hunt food and then set free. Oh, that's beautiful. That's magic in practice. Certainly. And that was a really wonderful extension beyond the individual empowerment into group empowerment and having a positive positive effect on your environment and your community that you you live within. Um, So it it was ongoing. It's a very interesting story. Very interesting story. And, of course... We, we now suspect that closing the Dolphin Arum is one of the triggers that made them come down so heavily on us because... I was just going to ask you that, yeah. Some of, the, some of the people who owned that business were conservative Tory, uh, you know, conservative MPs. Yeah. So they, they had ends with the, the police. I mean, you have to remember, I was never charged with anything, not even a parking ticket. Yeah. 
But we lost two houses, we lost all our property, we lost every photograph of the kids growing up, mm. all our videos and films, two tons of archives were destroyed by them. Terrible. They came in the house and smashed up Georgian historical Georgian fireplaces and windows with crowbars and sprayed things like, now what are you going to do, Genesis? Mm. This is the cops we're talking about. Of course. Yes, well. um, and this, some of this is in the book too, the Psychic Bible. It talks about the the backlash with the status quo. Yeah. Um, so it's it's uh, it's interesting to think back and realize how paranoid they must have got oh, about yeah. this group. You know, here we were doing these unheard of sexual rights, but doing no harm to anybody. Right. Not, not being secretive, you know, being very passionate but very open and free and and being very positive about the, the, the people in the town doing we had you know, we used to have a what we called a digger a digger a digger day every weekend where we would give away clothes and books uh-huh. and un, unnecessary items. We would just have a, a store that said it's yours, it's free yeah. and we would give away things to people too. So there was a lot of support for us as well in the community. And I think that, that magic has to become a much more uh, socially integrated process, personally. Looking back now, we, we think that it's time for people to, to reconsider setting up communal magical batteries, if you like, and right. experiments that the human, human uh, species needs examples of alternative ways of being and living. Right. And more people challenging things, because part of the reason I would think that it was so easy to create problems for you is that, Mm -hmm. well, you're challenging them, even though there's really no reason for them to be afraid, on a real basic level, the status quo is extremely challenged by your actions. And if more people are doing it, the status quo just naturally starts to switch. It has to, just by definition. Right. The majority is switching over, yeah. And there were, you know, there were access points, which were sort of um, groups of token individuals who would organize events, whether it be rays, film nights, whatever. But there were about 30 or 40 of them all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, and there were book publish. We were publishing books. We were, we were bringing out records and CDs and DVDs, organizing arts festivals all over Europe and America and Canada. Yeah. I mean... For a very small number of people, relatively small, we were we were showing that with 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 not so much material wealth, if you all share your resources, you can achieve more than people imagine. Right. We call it the um, the millionaire with nothing technique. <laughs> right. Where if if three of you has say one of you has a house in India, and one of you has a house in Oregon, and one of you has an apartment in New York and you have that level of trust, you all have a key, then right. in a theory you're like a millionaire because you say, I have a house in India and I have a house in Oregon right. and an apartment in New York, and I traveled around amongst them, which is what we were doing. There were quite a lot of nomadic topi people who right. just traveled around the world, staying at different centers and contributing and working and then moving on and sharing information and ideas. And um, It was a very vital, very active, very vibrant network, and yeah. I think they, you're right, they, the powers that we saw, the potential for it to exponentially grow quite fast. 
So we do recommend to everybody listening, when it's available, it should be published and out on Valentine's Day next year, 2010. And it's it's recommended, recommended reading. Oh, definitely. So anybody who wants to change the world, go have a look. (laughs) And we made a point in the back of adding in letters where we're arguing with different access points. You know, they're telling me that my ideas are completely crooked and crazy and they disagree completely. And we wanted that in too, so people could see that that was all part of the dynamic. Disagreeing was just as important. It wasn't seen as threatening, but as another way forward. Um, So there's lots of different templates, and people can take and change, you know, take a bit here, a bit there, discard this, discard that, add something that no one else has done in here, and just start living it, living magic. Yeah. Live it 24-7, you know? Yeah. It's one way or the other way. I mean, you can read magic and you can talk magic, but to live magic is a completely different thing. And as as you've seen with what happened to us, of course, there's a danger, and there was a danger for Crowley, you know, but we're in good company. Crowley had problems with the British government. Oscar Wilde had problems with the British government. Quentin Crisp had problems, and so did we. So we're in with the good people. (laughs) It's a validation of sorts, yes. It is, it is. You're doing something right. No, we we had them worried. And now, just when they probably think we've disappeared, out will come the book, and that that uh, that potential is back on the on the street for for use by whoever thinks it's of any help. Yeah. And it's it's a very a very uh, a very unique sort of phenomena. It's it's kind of cephalu taken to a next next step, you know, trying to make it bigger and bolder. And of course, we were aware that we would we were quite possibly going to run into a cultural brick wall. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, but it's worth the risk, isn't it, for the, for the Certainly. joy, the joy of finding out what can be done. I mean, because what's the point otherwise, to just hide in your room, thinking yeah. things, you know? Yeah, and, and wearing a robe and shouting Egyptian names and running in circles. <laughs> I mean, that's okay, no, of course, yeah. but, but for me, I'm, 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 I'm from the 60s, you know? And the 60s is very much about, if you think about it, you have a, a responsibility to try and do it. Yeah. And if you want to try and do it, you should try and do it on behalf of everyone yeah. to, make, to make the world a better place. And if magic is really as wonderful as so many of us say it is, then surely it's going to make the world a better place to so go out and do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us, Genesis. Our guest today has been musician and artist Genesis Briar Peorich. Thank you for joining us. Love is the law, love under will. Thank you for joining us today on Thelema Now. Our guest has been Genesis P. Orridge, who is a musician and artist, and you can find out more about Genesis at her website, genesisp-orridge.com. You can find out more about her music and photographs, her upcoming art show, and we thank you for listening to Thelema Now, which is produced with the support of the Ordo Templi Orientis USA Grand Lodge. The opinions expressed on this program by the host and guests do not necessarily represent those of the OTO USA or any other officers or directors. Our mission is to provide listeners with interesting and thought-provoking interviews featuring people involved in mysticism, spirituality, and magical theory and practice. Our theme music is provided by Fern Knight. 
You can hear more about Fern Knight at their website, fernknight.com. And our producer is Sora Amy. Our host is Frater Puck. And until next time, 93.